to Women's Health Weekly from Maiden Lane Medical. We bring you experts from all around the country to help you with your health, life, and happiness. Now for your host, Dr. Kenneth Levy. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another exciting Friday at noon live on YouTube and Facebook. Women's Health Weekly brought to you from the Women's Health Medical Experts at Maiden Lane Medical here in New York City. I am so excited for this episode. I bring you our main event, uh, which is that I have asked Cindy Salas Murphy to come join us this week, and she has gracefully agreed. Thank you, Cindy. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Cindy joins us um, from San Diego, California, uh, where I presume it's nice and sunny on a day like today. No, no. Sunny and 75. Sunny and 75 in San Diego. Um, That's awesome. Um, A little bit of background. I've actually never met Cindy. I've never met Cindy in person. And so Cindy and I started talking um, late in in 2019. um, And uh, it was in the context of uh, her company that she founded that we're gonna talk a little bit about today called With Health. uh, Cindy is the CEO and co-founder of With Health Incorporated. Uh, which is, oh, I'll let Cindy explain the company. I don't want to, I don't want to take your thunder, but Cindy and I were talking and that, that several month long conversation turned into uh, a job. Um, and I actually work for Cindy. So I work for Cindy's company and it's been a very exciting journey for me. And I, and having come to know Cindy a little bit, I thought that she was the perfect person to bring in this topic, uh, which I, which is a topic near and dear to my heart, even though I'm not a woman, Um, I grew up in a house with a single mother who was raising two children, who I watched go from graduate school to a career, uh, which she then had for 35 or 40 years um, until she retired. And I was always proud of my mother. And I am sure there are other kids out there who are proud of their um, very hardworking mothers who have excelled in their careers and excelled in corporations against many odds and I have become leaders. So I, it, so in part, I wanted to have everyone hear Cindy's story, um, which actually I think we'll start off with instead of starting to talk about data, because the data is the data kind of backs up the the story more than the story backs up the data. So Cindy is, as I said, um, not not only has a graduate degree, a master's in public health, but also is the CEO and co-founder of With Health Incorporated. So I'm going to let Cindy tell her story, which which I, I am sure everybody who's listening will be very interested in. Oh, Ken, thank you. You're so kind. Well, it, you know, it's interesting how so much can happen nowadays that we've never been in the same room together. But quite honestly, I think after the first time we spoke, we knew we were kindred spirits, weren't we? Yeah, right. <laughs> It was great fun. It was great fun. So as Ken said, it's such a pleasure uh, for me to be here. And thank you, Ken, for inviting me to participate. Uh, Ken is not not working for me, but he works with me. He <laughs> is our chief medical officer at With Health, and I'm just so proud to have him as, as one of my partners in crime, truly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We have a lot of fun, and uh, and we really are disrupting healthcare. 
we're making healthcare better with health is is all about making healthcare affordable and accessible for everybody. So, um, so about me, um, I am a mother of four, two of my own and two stepchildren, and I am incredibly blessed. I live a life that is incredibly busy and uh, fruitful. Uh, I'm a very spiritual person. I find that taking care of my mind uh, through education and learning, uh, taking care of my body through healthy eating and exercise, and taking care of my spirit through prayer and meditation has really led me to have a balanced life and, and to make decisions for myself that, that are, are really what brings success to my life. And uh, my little ones uh, that are six and 11, I, I feel tremendous privilege to be able to show them what a mother can do. Uh, my my six-year-old truly, when, when she was first born, uh, six months after she was born, I was traveling the country growing my last startup. And uh, it would take me away for periods at a time, but I must say I was a single mom at the time and, and I have phenomenal parents and phenomenal support systems that that really came up and, and were a tremendous support in my life. And I guess that really is the story behind the story, Ken, is that for us as individuals, it's never just about us. It's always about the people that are around us, the people that support us. And so some people come, call them a tribe, other people call them a clan. Um, and quite honestly, I feel like we can't do this alone. We can't do life alone. It really does require a tremendous amount of support from family, from good friends. And so I feel that creating a life where I build my friendships, where where I sustain long-lasting friendships and and care for my family, and so that I can be a support to them, and they could be a support to me. It just works out that way. So it really does take a village. It does. It does. It does. In, every, in every way, it seems. I mean, not only to support you in raising children, but support you in the way you approach your. Um, career and your life um, and everything that goes that goes around that. So, Cindy, you didn't start off. You didn't like graduate with your MPH and suddenly become uh, a someone who's in a position to to start a, a major national like telemedicine corporation. That, that didn't happen overnight. So, no. tell me, tell me where <laughs> you started, um, and what and what were some of the challenges in developing the leadership acumen and leadership roles that you were able to, to develop. Quite honestly, my journey started when I was about eight years old. Um, my dad suffered from quite a, a severe injury and my mom was disabled. And And to be honest, I, I felt like I had lost my playmate. I felt like my when my dad got sick, I he was in the hospital for 30 days. I mean, it was it was tremendous, tremendous to see what my mom did to really help us through this process. And and I still remember being at that hospital and I said, I want to do something that helps people not have to go through this. I, I still remember that day, clear as day, clear as day. And and I knew that I needed that in my life. I knew that that's what I was destined to do. 
And so when, as I grew up, I took an affinity. I love science. I love math. I, I just, I, I find it just so much fun. There's, there's so much greatness in the exploration of it, in the exploration of science. So I became a scientist and uh, really focused on microbiology and, and made that my, my field of choice. And uh, quite honestly, I loved writing. I loved presenting. I was doing research on HIV and oral candidiasis, which back then it was still very new. Sure. We didn't know the transmit AIDS through kissing. So I, I really was very privileged that I could do research in that field and, uh, and learn more about it and support patients through that journey. And uh, I would love to write. I love doing the research. Um, I hated going to the lab and running Western blots at 4 a.m. It was not for me. And uh, <laughs> nowadays, I'm automated. And, you know, I mean, I was making auger plates at that time. It was crazy. And now you buy them, right? Right, right. <laughs> uh, so so it, in that time, I really felt like I needed to do something. And uh, I had a phenomenal mentor. And she said to me, go run a hospital somewhere be with people and make a difference that way. You don't have to be in the lab and you can still use these skills and go run a hospital. So I did and and I made that pivot and I pursued my master in public health. And the reason why I chose public health instead of business is that I felt that the way that we could make the biggest impact is not by addressing individuals through a business, but more about creating a solution for our community. Because if we look at illness by symptom, we're never gonna get to the real answer. The only way we'll get to the real answer is we look at what is encompassing in the illness, not just that one symptom. And so I felt like going the public health route was giving me that opportunity to do it. And it was so much fun. And Ken, you have an MPH, so you remember, yeah, I remember do. that. It was an amazing time of discovery for me personally about, about the world and the world of healthcare um, in pursuing a master's in public health. And I, well, sidetrack, I would always encourage people if they're gonna choose a graduate degree anywhere in healthcare, that an MPH is is uh, a really excellent excellent choice. So anyway, you didn't just so so you didn't just walk into a hospital and become like senior leadership in a hospital. There were challenges oh. along the way. Well, like... Oh yeah. So I'll tell you, it's hilarious. My my very first project was to actually improve access in a medical group setting. And I, I still remember working through that and asking physicians to work more, uh, to see more patients in the same amount of time. How'd, how'd that and go I over? Did. <laughs> <laughs> it was tremendously <laughs> exciting. And, um, but you know what I really learned? I learned of the power of data, I learned of the power of the heart of the clinician, and that truly, at the heart of the clinician, what they want to do is do the right thing. So it was a beautiful lesson to learn then. And very quickly thereafter, I took on, although I had lots of bumps and bruises, uh, but then took uh, took on uh, a phenomenal project of, of creating new payment models for physicians. And I'll tell you, it was probably one of the highlights of my career because this was 
in the late 90s and creating a payment modeling system, Ken, that is actually being oh. implemented today. Yeah, that was the core. That was the, a lot of what happened in the 90s was a lot of the core about the, of the way, you know, reimbursement works works today. It's, right. it's incredibly right. interesting. And, yes, are, and I'll tell you, I still remember being in the basement library with the associate medical director and she and I were going through this and she said, I don't know if you're going to live another day. <laughs> so you were working under an associate medical director who just, if you're listening and you, and you know that an associate medical director is one of the most senior positions in any hospital. Um, see, so it would go like associate or senior medical director or chief medical officer would kind of be the rank there. So you, there was a woman you worked with who I presume yes. was a physician because she was an associate medical director. And right. did you, do you feel like she, she uh, sounds like she mentored if anything, but do you feel like she paved the way for you? Do you feel like she paved the road for you? You know what, Ken? Absolutely. I feel like she put me through a process that I think only someone that, that really sees the potential in you would do that. It was it was truly asking me the tough questions, making sure that that whatever I presented was with conviction, because we were changing the way physicians got paid. This isn't this wasn't just a let's create a happy moment for everyone or let's create smile therapy in the office. It was really a multi-specialty medical group, more than 450 physicians, and it was about changing the way they get paid. I mean, imagine that's this young intense, kid. That's intense work. And I'm, and I'm curious, is. and I'm curious in the context of this conversation about the dynamic, about the dynamic there, because you're working with, you're working with a woman who's, who's, who's already kind of in this, in this position of leadership. Um, and I presume there are also men in roles of leadership that you are interfacing with as Absolutely. well. Um, was the was the thinking I mean, and and hold it just also let's put it in some temporal context this is the late 90s there was no hashtag me too there was no women's empowerment like the last great thing that happened to women before the 90s was um was this was like the the tail end of the civil rights movement in the 70s like, that's that was, right like that was the last like real real like corporate or work advance like Sexual harassment had become a significant issue, but there was certainly, like I said, there was certainly no hashtag Me Too. Um, so there wasn't this like, you know, 2010s environment that we have today that women that women work in. So before I get to the rest of your conversation, I think this is a good place to inter to intersperse some data um, yeah. about about women in in corporate roles and corporate leadership. I, I took this from the McKinsey website. Uh, McKinsey, as you know, as many of you will well, well, well know, is a um, one of the biggest consulting firms in the world, one of the most well-known, and they're, they're well-respected. Uh, they have uh, conducted in partnership with uh, LeanIn.org, which is a, a progressive organization, um, so, to, so, so to speak, or so to use the term progressive, um, an organization that uh, really promotes uh, rights and values and some of the good things that we are here in America. Um, so they followed 600 companies since 2015, and um, over the, so so and the, so I'm going to give you the data that they had over the five years from 2015 to 20 to 2019. Um, some good things and some not such good things. Uh, there was no real change, and they interviewed hundreds of women um, and looked at hundreds of corp, you know these 600 corporate policies and their staffing and everything. 
Um, so there was no real change in the sense that being a female was a barrier to advancement. So women, were, so my interpretation of that is women working at these companies, there's a barrier to female to being a female and advancing based on that barrier, um, and none of that improved in five years. That was the that's their conclusion. Um, there was no real change in what we're going to term microaggressions towards women, um, and I presume that's the that's you know when we talk about microaggressions towards women in the workplace, uh, we think about uh, flirting, um, inappropriate comments. Um, uncomfortable comments, um, uh, even little things like, "Hey, I'm going out. Uh, we're going. The, the guys are going out for a drink after work, uh, and the guy, and it's the guys, and then you instantly feel uncomfortable." So there are, th those are, those are, I guess, some general examples of micro uh, microaggressions, um, and though the, there was no real change in that over five years. And remember, this is the heart of hashtag Me Too. Uh, so in the heart of hashtag Me Too, these two things didn't change. My, and you'd especially, you'd especially think that um, the environment around microaggressions, with all of this, you know, extra corporate training, and and even just if you're, you know, if you have, if you don't have two neurons to rub together, and you're a male in an environment where you work with females, um, you know, if you're not that bright, you should at least know not to do any of this stuff, um, because you're <laughs> going to wind up on the the evening news. Um, and at the very and at the very maximum, if you do have two neurons to rub together, you know that they're the wrong things to do. Um, so the so the next point of data that I saw there was that there was minimal change, um, less than five percent change in women um, and in women um, and managerial representation of uh, managerial representation of women in general, and also that that goes to women of color. But we could have a whole other episode. On, on minorities and um, opportunity for minorities in, at the senior levels of, of corporations and organizations. Um, the good news, um, and, and you know, I, I sort of mitigate this good news with it's, you know, it's not that big of a change, that there was an increase in 24, there was an increase of 24% of the companies um, in the number of women in C-suite roles. So 24% of the companies had an increase in the number of women in C-suite roles, but that number went from 17% to 21%. In other words, so their C-suite roles were occupied, and by C-suite, I mean chief executive officer, chief financial officer, you know, chief business development officer. Um, those are C-suite roles. Um, and those um, went from 17 to 17% of the C-suite roles were occupied by women, and then five years later, 21%. Um, and so considering that women make up like roughly 50% of our population, doesn't seem very, uh, so something's wrong there. Um, so there, there, it remains the fact that there's a huge underrepresentation of women in these roles, um, and the case is that for every hundred men promoted, only 72 women are promoted. Um, so those are some of the corporate. That's some of the corporate environment and corporate practices that we can discuss. Um, so anyway, back to Cindy. Knowing that data, um, let's go back to talking about Cindy because, you, I mean, this is and again, I, you're not. You're not just starting out in a career where you're looking to become a, a, a chief executive officer or you're going to become a chief executive officer. You were doing this in the, in the 90s and early 2000s when a lot less of this, um, this you know, I, maybe we could just call it, you know, sugarcoating at this point because if there's no real change and it's just sugarcoating, um, stuff existed. So what were some of the challenges that you faced and was it consistent with anything I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, some of the challenges, to be quite honest, um, had to do with age bias, because when you're very young, 
Um, I was a 22 year old um, and and able to to really make big changes. Um, getting from the physicians, the male physicians in particular, saying, "What the hell do you know? You're 22 years old, and you know you, you know how to run numbers." You know, and in, in, instead of really looking at how is it that you came up with this information, so the curiosity to understand how did I come up with that information, I think was thrown at the wayside because of my age, because, and, and quite honestly, because I was a young, young gal showing up, right? And so I, I must say, Ken, I, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I think I, I was really trained to do this. I was, um, I'm, I'm one of five kids. Uh, I had three brothers that all passed away as babies. And it was just my sister and I and my parents. And I'll tell you, my dad told me and my mom would tell me every day, you can do anything. Doesn't matter. Girls or boys, you can do anything. I was never I was never told, oh, don't try that. Don't do that. If I wanted to play baseball, I'd play baseball. If I wanted to play volleyball, I'd play volleyball. It, it, it didn't matter if I wanted to do ballet or cheer. It, they never said you can't do anything. I was, I, I remember changing the oil in the car. I think I was 10 years old. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's a good dad. I know. I know. Yeah. I can't wait for you to meet him. He's awesome. My mom is too. I mean, they really are. But, but you know what, on top of that, I think that um, going to an all uh, a predominantly female college also prepared me for that where I went to a co-ed high school, but but going to a predominantly women's college, there is no uh, juxtapositioning as far as debate um, with male, female. So when I came out of school, I, was, I wasn't conditioned to look for the bias, but also it put me in a position where it allowed me to ignore the bias, even if it was thrown at me. So I really feel like I was I was well prepared for it. But something that you bring up, Ken, that the data resonates really with what is happening today, especially with this number of 17 to 21 percent uh, going from 17 to 21 percent in the C-suite. It's really the notion of implicit bias. We're we're great. I think today we are great about looking out for those biases. I think the one thing Me Too has done, although it did a lot of things, the one thing that I believe is, is really primordial that it did is that it started the conversation so that people wouldn't be afraid to have those conversations. I think the pendulum swung in the entire other way and truly it made it for founders like me um, to go out and speak with uh, investors where I was told, you got to bring somebody with you. I'm not going to talk to you by yourself. So, I mean, that was real. But the piece that I think really I have noticed is this implicit bias. And the implicit bias is something that is just innate. And it is really challenging, even with the Me Too effort, it's really challenging to do away with that implicit bias because we don't often hear it ourselves. So I'll give you an example. Uh, my uh, co-founder and I were meeting with an investor 
and it was a female investor. So this bias goes, goes transcends all genders. I was meeting with an investor. We were meeting with an investor and the investor said, Hey, Mark, you guys travel so much. What are you doing? Did he? So the investor said, you guys travel a lot, don't you? And Mark goes, yeah, we do. And the investor looked at me or asked Mark, do you have kids? And he said, yeah, I do. I have three. The investor asked me, do you have kids? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, how do you do it? How do you how do you travel so much with the kids at home? Mark just said he had three kids. How do you try? Right, one second. How do you try? You have one more kid than he does. How do you travel so much, Cindy? Mark, no problem. We understand how Mark does it. But how do you do it? That's amazing. Exactly. Exactly. And it came from another female. So look, I, I don't believe that there was any malintent, but that's what I call that implicit bias, that that bias that automatically exists, that who's responsible for the caretaking of the children is the mother. And so I am the mother. Now, I, I must say I'm very privileged. I am the mom. I am responsible for caretaking. And, and you know, that's fair uh, because I am. But the notion that there would be a concern, because remember, this is an investor that is speaking to us. The investor speaking to me, the founder, the CEO of the company, as far as how am I managing my children, not our co-founder and CFO. <laughs> This yeah. is this is the investor making a decision whether or not to invest. So along with those things, um, there's a lot of research also to add into implicit bias when it comes to entrepreneurs and investors, and in that they ask um, not questions of promotion. And there's tons of research. I'm happy to share with that. But but even the phrasing of questions where um, one is promotion and the other one is really defending your position. And so females get the questions were really, you have to defend your numbers and males uh, get the questions where they're really promoting their numbers. And so, and that's not, that's not me um, telling you that's what I experienced. I'm very blessed that, that we have such a great value proposition that it hasn't been a problem for us, but it is what the research points to. So these numbers don't surprise me, Ken. And I think that as individuals, what we can do because there is there is a silver lining right i believe that there's no such thing as failure and you've heard me say this before ken i don't believe there's anything such as failure i think there are just moments that provide us gifts and if we think of ourselves as living through a failure we will sit in it but if you think of a moment where something didn't go the way you expected it to and you actually look at it as a gift, then you come out on the other side feeling blessed, feeling grateful for that moment that occurred. So going back to what we were speaking of, what's the silver lining in all this? That What's the silver lining in this bias that we're seeing? It's that there's growth potential. It's that the women out there, the parents out there have the opportunity to rise above. We have the opportunity to create a culture where we're promoting other individuals to come together and create a better experience as we all grow into our careers. The idea is that you can do anything you want to do and teaching others that that is in fact true, that you can do 
anything you want to and and living those values that's the silver lining that truly is the silver lining and i think for women why is that the silver lining because men have also been compartmentalized men are when you think of a carpenter how many times do you say he when you think of a plumber how many times do you say he when you think of a physician even ken how many times does that happen right where we just hear the word he so it, men have also been compartmentalized and so i think that it really gives us the opportunity to rise above to create a new conversation where we say you can accomplish anything anything is possible and really creating that believing that for yourself so the so I love the message. The message is great, but the question is, so that's how it should be, right? But the question is, how do we get there? Um, and, you know, you, you, you marked out the, you brought up the topic of implicit, I like to call it unconscious bias. Um, right. Because, right. It's, it's definitely there. Um, it's unconscious. And you hope that people don't act on that unconscious bias. But the bottom line is they do uh, because they don't know, they don't necessarily realize that's, that's their bias. Um, and you pointed that, you pointed that out. Um, and I think that if you kind of look at that, um, as an overarching theme, that unconscious or implicit bias, um, that, that everything else streams from that, the ability for a company to engage in what, what would otherwise be unfair and considerate discriminatory practices. Um, you know, how that, that missing rung exists from, you know, getting to, from like middle to senior management up, you know, if you don't get to that, then you'll never get to the C-suite. Um, and even in things like maternity leave policies, um, yeah. which are to me, to my estimation, I'm going to get to that. I promise I'm going to get to that in a second, um, <laughs> which to my estimation are, uh, is a, you know, as a, as a giant, and again, we could talk for another hour about maternity leave policies, but, um, Absolutely. which is another huge barrier, um, in, um, in the advancement of women um, towards the C-suite and becoming founders and having an opportunity to develop uh, their skills and talents for what they really are on an, on an equal footing with everyone else uh, in a given company. Um, so, you know, actually talking about maternity leave uh, policies, um, you know, you, so you, you have children at home. You've obviously taken, you, my guess is you take some time off from whatever you were doing to at the initial, I, I, I didn't hear the history on that, but you don't have to share it, but I'm going to take a guess. Um, so, but you had to, at that time, you had some choices to make. Uh, I did. And you could have taken two weeks off and run back to work. You could have taken, you potentially have taken six months off and not run back to work. Um, and I, and the, I guess the, the question I'm trying, the point I'm trying to bring up and that I'd like, really like your engagement on is um, women, women have choices or they don't, or at, or they're potentially in an environment where they really don't have choices, where the environment is so male oppressive or so oppressed by the male culture that they think, and I know this goes on in law firms and hedge funds and some high pressure environments like uh, investment banking, uh, where where there's so much pressure to perform um, that women will either significantly delay childbearing to the point where they simply can no longer have children. Um, or they will lose the um, opportunity around the time of childbearing um, when their kids are first born to create that very special bond that exists between the mother and the child, you know, in the first, you know, four to six months of life. And uh, so just, yeah, I, 
that, I, I know I said a lot <laughs> right there, which could like lead to 10 other topics. But uh, I think the commentary, <laughs> what I'm kind of looking from you is like, how, how do those choices play out? I mean, how do, how does, how do you navigate that? I mean, you're a, you've clearly navigated it with success. And so how do you do that? Is that, is that, a, well, is that okay. a 30 second, is that a 30 second answer? <laughs> I'm sorry, hardly, Cindy. I apologize. Hardly, hardly, but but here's here's the gist of it. So I think this this uh, this will paint the landscape for sure. So I was what you call AMA, advanced maternal age, and so um, as you can imagine, exactly what you said. I actually delayed having children, not having them early on because I was so career focused. I enjoyed my work, and I made the the decision truly to to wait. And even I still remember when I was pregnant with my oldest, I still remember the shock that I felt. And the reason was we were opening a new hospital. And what was I going to do? We were opening this new hospital. And so, of course, as all things construction go, got delayed, got delayed, got delayed. But in the end, I was able to come back and actually be part of the opening. And I had the privilege of working for an amazing organization that uh, was tremendously supportive. But but that to that end, I breastfed my children. And so creating a culture and environment where you are encouraging mothers to do what's best for their children, and I believe breastfeeding is what's best for your child, um, even being in a corporate setting, Ken, to say, I'm sorry, I can't book meetings between these time slots because I have to go pump. I, and 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 for people to look at you to go, what do you mean? You're not going to sit in yeah, this all right. day? Yeah, That's, right, right. You know, what's, what's that bag you're carrying? And why do you have a cooler in your hand? Right. You know, I mean, it, it truly, it is challenging. And it does take fortitude to actually, you know, say this is important and I'm doing this. Um, when I had my second child, uh, I didn't have that privilege. Uh, I didn't have that privilege, not because it wasn't bestowed on me, but really I didn't have that privilege because I didn't give myself that privilege. When I had my second child, uh, I was with the startup and my last startup, and we were on this tremendous growth trajectory. And truly, I saw the difference that we were making for hospitals. I saw the difference that we were making for people's lives um hospitals across the country so i felt like it was i i took a much shorter time frame uh and and i was back at it but my employer again um was supportive of the decisions that i made and and really i i must admit i was i was senior in the organization um so i was able to to really lay out what would work for me uh, but I feel that employer would have done that for anybody else. I, I really, I think one of the pieces is really choosing where you work, creating your employer of choice, making that employer of choice decision very carefully, that it's not something that, that you just do very quickly and you decide to jump on board. Yeah, it sounds like it's a critical decision. The, the first most critical decision is not working for somebody who um, doesn't believe in, the, who, with whom you're not philosophically aligned. Uh, when it yeah. comes to your um, desire to grow a family and grow a career. Right. And when you stop becoming philosophically aligned, that you make the decision to step away. 
that you don't stay in a role where you think it's going to get better. You really, if you're philosophically unaligned, you go because it's like a bad relation. It's like a bad relationship. I mean, people don't change that much. Company policies really don't change unless some, some lawyer forces them to change. And uh, certainly and attitudes generally don't change. Yeah. No, I I've never had that happen to me. So I'm very blessed in that sense. But but I think for others, that's that's a very real situation. So you may be aligned at the beginning, but you've reached a point where you're no longer aligned because your own values may have changed. Maybe you started when you didn't want children and then now you do want children. Finding that what I call quality match is absolutely critical. Yeah. And the 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 time spent um, with that relationship is invaluable. Um, and I, I always tell people that so we have a fairly generous maternity leave policy in our practice. Uh, it's essentially take as much time as you want, come back when you're ready. Um, and we always give, you know, we block off times during the day for breastfeeding. Um, and, uh, so my wife, uh, is it my wife, this is, here's a little background about me. My wife's a dentist, um, and, uh, owns her own practice, runs her own practice. She's been very successful. Um, she breastfed for, she breastfed for a year, uh, while she worked. In between, and would pump in between patients and bring it home in the coolers and schlep it on the train. I never saw anything like it. We're so proud of her. Um, but she breastfed both her kids for a year. Um, and, and I just, it hit me at the time how incredibly difficult that is um, and how important it is to have the support of a company that, I hate to use the term, because you used the term bestowed upon me, and I almost had like a, a bad feeling about that. Like, who, what, what right is it of yours to like bestow on me the privilege of, breastfeeding my child and spending and having the the time to do that and i and i think that's kind of a link that people don't see like this is you have to do this if you can do it obviously obviously some women have issues with breastfeeding and have to bottle feed and some women make the choice to bottle feed only and that's their choice um but uh if that's your choice then you should you should be in a company uh that allows you to do it i i was i was uh, we spent a, a, a little time alluding to maternity leave policies Yes. Um, oh yeah. But uh, I, 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 and I kind, and I kind of wanted to include that as sort of like the end of the conversation. Um, but it's such a critical part of decision making, um, and I think that's a really good overarching message. Is if you know you're a thirty something, let's say, and you're you've decided that you and your you and your life partner are going to, you know, develop a family in your mid thirties. You see a career career trajectory for yourself. Um, you you plan on staying with a company long term. And you hope to get to upper management C-suite level, and you probably could do that. Um, but all of a sudden, you realize the company is not philosophically aligned with you when it comes to maternity leave policies. Is that the end of the relationship? Well, and and unless you're willing to create change within the company, and the company is willing to listen and collaborate on change, I think it should be. Yep. I think it should be. I, I think that if the employer is not willing to change, staying in an environment is is your doing it's it's your responsibility to find a place that actually fits for you you're not going to work in a place where if if you're against uh building nuclear weapons you're not going to go into a plant that builds nuclear weapons right so i think we have to be aligned and seek that alignment in in our work practice um i love what you said about um maternity leave, I believe that completely. And Ken, I I believe that as far as uh, time off as well, not only is it important to actually take 
time off maternity, but also time off periodically where you can turn your phone off and just decompress, where you can actually step away. At With Health, one of the first policies that I created was we have unlimited PTO. We don't actually have PTO where you can take two day, two weeks off, no paid time off policy. Yeah. It really is unlimited time off. We feel it's important to allow our team members, our professionals to say, look, I need a break and I have enough leadership within myself to actually say, I'm going to take some space. I'm going to take a week away. I'm going to take five days away. I'm going to take a month off. And here's how I'm going to manage that month off. Here's what I'm going to do because I'm responsible for the work that I do and I'm going to manage it this way. And unlimited PTO, I think, gives people that opportunity to connect with their families, to connect with their friends if they don't have a family. But it's really about having that time where they can decompress. City has developed a great corporate leadership philosophy that is... Uh, that seems that's based on your uh, life experiences, based on your understanding of what it means to be uh, a human being first and primarily, but also what it means to be uh, a woman in a corporate environment uh, where work is a challenge and family is a challenge. Um, and we have about um, 15 or 20 other topics here to discuss and we could spend the next like hundred hours talking about them, but we don't have a hundred hours. Uh, we, we're going to, we're going to wrap up and end the conversation. I think the thing, the last thing you said about, um, just, you know, the importance of being aligned with whatever company you're part of, um, in every way so that it fits your career goals, so that it fits your lifestyle desires and it makes you comfortable. You don't have to deal with microaggressions. You don't have to deal with crappy, crappy old school policies that are that while they may be consistent with the law are bad news are bad news for your um, goals and for the way you might potentially be happy. You don't have to do that. There are great companies out there that you can go to work for uh, that will support you uh, and your career advancement and mentor you and and help you and work on developing a family um, in, in many, many different ways. Is that is do you think that's the overarching message to the conversation? And do you have anything to generally add to that? I would say that that really to all the women that are listening and, and will listen to this in the future, just understand that you're in the driver's seat. You get to make the decision where you work. Seek that alignment and, and don't compromise. Only go with what you value and what you see is important. And the opportunities will arise. You don't need to stay in an environment where it doesn't work for you only work in a place where it works for you because that's where you will shine. You will be able to be your true authentic self and truly shine and give all of yourself so that you can make a difference for others. That's awesome. This has been a really fantastic conversation, a really pleasant conversation. Cindy, always great talking to you. And I truly appreciate the time you took out from your busy morning uh, in San Diego to join us here on Women's Health Weekly. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate the opportunity. So this has been Women's Health Weekly, brought to you by the experts in women's health at Maiden Lane Medical, uh, broadcasting from uh, New York City and the New York City suburbs, and now San Diego today. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, this is our last episode for the summer. 
Uh, we are done for the whole entire month of August. We will see everyone back in September with fantastic content, amazing guests, and experts from around the world. God bless, and thank you all. Have a wonderful rest of the summer.